Uh, last Sunday, we began a new sermon series called A Holy Meal, and we're continuing that, of course, with that this Sunday. And each of these Sundays leading up to Easter, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, so that uh, is um, uh, different from what we normally do. We normally celebrate the table of the Lord once a month, but we're going to be doing this every week as we head into Easter. And each Sunday, we're going to be looking at a different um, word that is associated with this holy meal from the scriptures and trying to understand a little bit more deeply and uh, reaffirm to our hearts the deep significance of this meal that Jesus gave his followers to eat and to be blessed by um, as a community of faith. And so last Sunday, the word that we looked at was remembrance. And we, uh, prob- I-, I said that this is probably the word that most of us associate with the Lord's Supper. That is, when Jesus took the bread with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed by Judas, uh, before his death, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so the early church picked up on this and they celebrated the Lord's Supper on a regular basis together. They ate bread and they drank, uh, they drank the cup together. And they remembered Jesus. And we said last Sunday that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, it wasn't a call to fix our faulty memories. That is, that we don't do this in the sense that we forget the story. That we forget, well, where did Jesus die? And was it Roman soldiers? We don't forget the details. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, we are called to gather around this table and remember the significance of what Jesus has done to focus our heart's affection and attention on Jesus to do what Hebrews tells us to do, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame for us. And so we remember. But we also talked about that we don't remember Jesus as a person who has gone on and is no longer with us. We remember the risen Jesus. We remember that Jesus is with us here now and has this meal with us and wants to eat and commune with us. And so we gather to remember. So that was the word for last Sunday. This Sunday, the word is covenant. Covenant. When Jesus took the wine, the the cup of wine, he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, is my blood of the new covenant. So the word covenant. And so when I say the word covenant, I would think that most of us When we think of a covenant, think of some sort of uh, agreement between two parties where there are conditions that each party agrees on, terms of the agreement, and the two parties come together and they agree, and this will be uh, the way of establishing this relationship, whatever kind of relationship that is. And there's all sorts of different covenants or agreements or contracts or whatever the word you want to use is. And so... Lots of different examples of this. So one example, a couple of years ago, my wife Corley and I made a decision to uh, to sell our house um, in one part of town here and to build a new house in another part of town. So the first step was to meet with a builder. And so we met with a builder, and he came to our house several times. We sat around our dining room table, and we talked about plans. We talked about our expectations. He talked about his expectations. All of these expectations were drawn up on paper until it came to one, uh, you know, climax moment where we took out the pen and we signed our life away. We signed the papers and we signed this covenant or this contract. 
And it was a done deal. And then he left, and then I had one of those, oh my goodness, what did I just do moments. Have you ever had those moments? Because we still had to sell the house, and, uh, but it worked, out, it worked out fine. But that is one sort of covenant. And in that kind of covenant, each person is expected to keep up their end of the deal, or the covenant can be broken. Different kind of covenant. So July 22nd, 1995, I was standing on a stage at Foothills Alliance Church in Calgary, Alberta. On the stage with me was my father and a few other people. And down the aisle came a beautiful young lady named Coralie. And I walked down from the stage, and I took Coralie by the arm, and I walked her up on the stage, and I pledged my life to her. And we exchanged vows, and we were then married on July 22, 1995. And I have a copy of the vows that I made to my wife and that my wife made uh, for me. And we framed them, and they are kept in our room. And these are very special. And these are I, I said a lot of things to my wife on that day as I read these. Uh, I promised a lot of things. And I said, Coralie, as your husband, I will honor you and respect you. I will encourage you in your walk with God. And I promised her a lot of things. And I pledge these things to her. Now, how many of you think that I live out these promises perfectly on a daily basis? Thank you. Thank you. You get bonus points this morning. Of course, I don't. And neither does she, although she is much better at it than I am. But in this covenant, uh, this covenant is not broken if I have a bad day. Because part of this covenant, this covenant is founded in a willingness and a commitment to forgive one another. And I'm committed to this covenant until I die. My wife is stuck with me until I die. Okay, But we are both committed to this covenant because this covenant is founded in forgiveness. There's all sorts of different covenants that occur in our world. In the Bible, there's all sorts of different covenants. In the Bible, God would come and he would make covenants with the nation of Israel. Covenants were a means by which God entered into relationship with his people. This morning, I want to talk to you about the new covenant in Christ. But in order for us to do that, we have to first understand the old covenant. And in order for us to do that, we first have to really dig in together this morning. And we have to concentrate and so I'm asking you to dig in and to stay with me this morning as we focus in on what the word has to say about the old covenant so so don't plan your lunch menu as I'm talking this morning just dig in and focus with me and I promise you that we will eventually get to the Lord's Supper and we will see the significance of the new covenant as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together okay deal all right all God's people said Okay, we've done this before. You should know what I want here. I'm not looking for an amen. I'm looking for deal. All God's people said? All right. Did you know that you just entered into a covenant with me? I tricked you into that. All right. Here we go. Uh, The old covenant that God made with his people, uh, with the people of Israel, was made through Moses. And it was made around three months after God uh, set Israel free from the the land of Egypt. Uh, If you recall from last Sunday, Israel was, uh, they were slaves in the land of Egypt for around 400 years. And uh, it all came to a pinnacle, a climax, when God uh, um, set his people free as slaves out of Egypt. And finally, they were free. 
And about three months after that event, God, through Moses, came to his people and he said, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in Exodus chapter 24, this covenant that God is making with his people is confirmed. And so Moses had written down all of these laws, all of these terms that God wanted his people to live by. And so all the people gather together, and there is a sacrifice that is made, and bulls are sacrificed on the altar. And then Moses takes some of the blood from the bulls, and he sprinkles it on the altar. And then he gets this, the book of the covenant, the laws that God had for his people, and he reads them before the whole people. And all of the people agree to this covenant. They commit themselves to the covenant. They say in Exodus chapter 24, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then Moses does something. He takes more blood. He takes the blood of the bulls and he sprinkles them on the people. Now they probably did this with a a, a branch and they dipped it in the blood and they sprinkled it on the people. And the book of Hebrews tells us that what this signified was that the cleansing of God's people. That God's people were cleansed of their sin. They were forgiven as they entered into this covenant with God. So that was the old covenant. But ultimately, this old covenant was insufficient. There was a problem with this old covenant. Those aren't my words. As you read through the book of Hebrews, it tells us that this old covenant, there was a problem with it. And here's the problem with this old covenant. The problem was was not God. God always keeps his side of the deal. He always keeps his covenant. The problem was God's people. And the problem in particular was that God's people, not only did they not keep their end of the deal, not only did they continue to sin, but they were not able to keep their end of the deal. And the reason for that is because obedience to God does not happen when we simply try to change our outward behavior. There needs to be a change of heart inside. And Israel's hearts were not changed. And therefore, they were not walking in God's laws. They were not able to fully obey God's laws. And therefore, they kept sinning. And therefore, day after day, month after month, Year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice kept having to be made for Israel's sins to atone for their sins. This old covenant, although God instituted it with his people, was insufficient because God's people did not obey. Their hearts were not changed. And sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice kept on having to be made for their sin. And so, in the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets in the Old Testament... It, they look forward to a new covenant, to a day when there would be, God would make a new covenant with his people. This covenant would replace the old covenant. This new covenant would be superior to the old covenant. This new covenant was established through and found its fulfillment all in one person. It wasn't Moses. It was someone else. So as you read your Old Testament, the prophets talked about this new covenant. And let me read to you a couple of passages Uh, from the Old Testament here. The first is from the book of Isaiah. Gavin, I'm going to have you flip through these uh, as I read them. From the book of, uh, sorry, from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand 
to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenants, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So there's something new that God was going to do. Something, first of all, in people's hearts. And God, in doing that, announces his forgiveness over his people. Then, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 24 to 27, God says this, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then Jesus comes along on the night he was betrayed. And he took bread, as we talked about, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why don't you think about that for a moment? Remember last Sunday, we talked about how this meal was served at the Passover. This meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples was the Passover meal where they looked back at Israel's history and they remembered God's deliverance out of the land of Egypt. And each family took the blood of a lamb and they sprinkled over the doorposts and their household was passed over on that tenth plague and they were saved if they had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and jesus said do this meal as they would normally remember the exodus jesus says no you do this meal in remembrance of me i am israel's hope i am israel's salvation and jesus says this cup is the new covenant in my blood and in doing this jesus is saying all of israel's history All of Israel's hope is pointing to me, Jesus says. And in doing this, Jesus is telling us all of humanity's hope is pointing to me. It will no longer be the blood of bulls or goats or anything like that. Your hope is in me and in my shed blood for you. Deeply significant what Jesus is doing here. I would encourage you to take some time and read through particularly Hebrews chapter 8 through 10 where the writer of Hebrews compares the Old Covenant with the New Covenant that has been established in Christ. But in this section of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that sacrifices kept on having to be offered day after day after day that ultimately didn't atone for sin. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, not my words, but the words of God. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 11, it says this, Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For he, first he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Jesus established the new covenant. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he would establish this new covenant. And this new covenant would forever solve the two major problems that were there with the old covenant. Jesus' sacrifice would be the once and for all permanent sacrifice for sin. One sacrifice for all time. It was finished, as Jesus said on the cross. And secondly, Jesus would give his followers the Holy Spirit, who would come inside of our lives, who would regenerate us, that is, give us new life, and change our hearts, and enable us to now follow Jesus with all of our hearts. It wouldn't be something that we're trying to do on our own strength. The Spirit would be inside of us and give us new life and help us to follow him. John Piper says this, Jesus established the new covenant by shedding his blood for people and thus securing for them the forgiveness of their sins and the sanctification of their soul. So how does someone enter this new covenant that Jesus established? Because the Bible is very clear that you do not enter into this covenant agreement with God because of your nationality. It's no longer about being Jewish, being from Israel. You don't enter into this new covenant because your parents are part of the new covenant or because your grandparents are or were part of the new covenant. The Bible is very clear that you enter into this covenant relationship with God through faith. Not faith in something out there, but faith in one person, and his name is Jesus. And what the Bible means by faith is this, is that we come to God and we say, God, by faith, I am trusting in what you have done for me through your son, Jesus. That when Jesus died on the cross, his death is enough to pay for my sin. And I'm trusting in what Jesus has done for me, for my forgiveness, for my eternal life. I'm not trusting in my own good works. And I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again from the grave. It is expressing our faith to God. This is what the scriptures say. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works. Scriptures also say that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. But part of this faith that the scriptures talk about, we need to understand that faith is not just mere words. Faith isn't coming to God and saying, God, I want to I trust in you for salvation, but I'm just going to live my life however I want. The Bible would say that that is empty faith. We don't earn our way into salvation, but part of our faith is saying, God, I am trusting what Jesus has done for me, and God, I am turning from my sin, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give you my life. That is robust faith. That is living faith, the Bible would say. That is our vows to God as part of this covenant. God, we are trusting in you and what you say you will do for us through your son Jesus, that we will be forgiven and that you will put your spirit inside of us. And we vow, we promise, we are giving ourselves to follow your son Jesus with your help and the help of your spirit. Those are our vows to God. But you just need to know 
that you don't follow Jesus on your own, but by the Spirit whom he gives you. And your place in the new covenant, friends, is not dependent on how well you obey or how many times you disobey or mess up. This covenant, established through the blood of Jesus, is not dependent on your work. It is dependent wholly and solely on the work of Christ. And therefore, if you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, friends, you are secure in this new covenant because it was established in Christ's blood, not in your performance. That's very clear in the scriptures. So we come to the communion table and we remember this new covenant that Christ established through the shedding of his blood. And we acknowledge that because of this covenant that God has made with us, he says that we've been forgiven. Not because we've been sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats, but because we have been sprinkled and cleansed with the blood of his son, Jesus. That's what makes you holy. That's what makes you forgiven and acceptable before God. So when you come to the table, you and I remember that we are forgiven people, cleansed by God. And we might say, but God, I've messed up so many times this week. And God says, my daughter, my son, you are forgiven. But God, I have messed up so many times in my past. You are forgiven. You are members of the new covenant. But God, I have this nagging voice in my soul that tells me to wonder whether I am forgiven or not. And God would say, my daughter, my son, what I have done through my son Jesus is enough. The blood of my son Jesus is enough once and for all for the forgiveness of your sin. Friends, this is the promise that God has made with you through his son Jesus. And friends, let me remind you, when God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, he always keeps his promise. And you can come to the table this morning if you are in Christ, knowing you are forgiven people. Because this covenant was made in Jesus' blood, not in your performance. In the church, there are two rites, there are two ordinances that allow us to physically participate in this new covenant. Two rites that God has given us, that Jesus has given us, to allow us to physically participate in this new covenant that Jesus established. The first rite, the first ordinance of the church, is baptism. Baptism is the rite of initiation into the new covenant. That is, that baptism is the rite of initiation into a relationship with Jesus that is founded on his death and his resurrection. In the scriptures, in the New Testament, when a person came to express their faith in Jesus Christ, they physically participated in that decision to express faith in Jesus Christ. The way they physically participated in this was baptism. Baptism was a physical way of saying, I am identifying with Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I am dying to my old self. I've been raised to new life in Christ. And so I've said this to you before, but in the 19th, 20th century, the way that we have done in the church to say, if you want to express your new faith in Christ physically, then come forward to the, to the altar at the front of the church. But if you read the scriptures... The way people expressed their newfound faith in Christ was not by coming to an altar. It was by going to the river. That was the rite of initiation. That people went to the river and they were baptized into 
Jesus into his death and up into his resurrection. And I want to call us this morning. I want to say to us, can you be a Christian without being baptized? Yes, you can, because we acknowledge it's not the physical act of baptism that saves us. But I want to say this to you, that if you are a follower of Christ, you need to hear that the New Testament would have no category, would have no understanding of someone who says, I follow Jesus, but I'm not, I'm not willing to be baptized. Because in the New Testament, to be a follower of Christ was to be baptized. And so if you're here this morning and you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you follow Jesus, you are trusting in his work on the cross, you need to be baptized. Not because it saves you, but because Jesus calls you to it. And because of its deep significance. This is how you physically demonstrate that you are you have made a decision to follow Jesus, that you are trusting in him. That is the first right. That is baptism. That allows us to physically participate in this new covenant. And the second ordinance, the second right that Jesus gave us to physically participate in this new covenant is the Lord's Supper, is the communion table. It is a meal where we come and we renew and affirm our identity with this new covenant. This table is a place where we remember God's vows to us, that we are a forgiven people, that he will give us and has given us his spirit. And it is a place where it is wholly appropriate where we renew our vows with God as part of this covenant, where we will say, God, I will follow you. These things that you have said, we will do. I will follow your son, Jesus. From time to time, someone will come into my office or call me, and they will say, you know, I was baptized as a teenager or as a young adult, but then I had a period in my life where I, I wandered and wasn't sure about things, and now I'm back on track with God, and I want to be baptized again. And my response almost all of the time is, no, we're not going to do that. And here's the reason. Here's one of the reasons. is because as you read through the New Testament, people weren't baptized again and again and again. Baptism is for when you come to faith in Christ and you are physically demonstrating that you have faith in Christ. The baptismal tank is not the place where you come and keep renewing your vows to God again and again and again. The Lord's table is a place where you can come and say, God, I will follow you. The Lord's table is a place of grace. The only time I would baptize someone again is if their first baptism, they really did not understand what they were doing or if they were pressured and it really wasn't their decision. We are baptized in Jesus' name once and we come to the table, this gracious gift that Jesus has given us to come as a community of faith on a regular basis to reaffirm God's vows to us and to reaffirm our vows to God to follow him. But we do not renew our vows to God to secure anything. We are already secure in Christ. We renew our vows to God because we are in relationship with him. He is our father, we are his son. He is our father, we are his daughter. I want to close with this. John Piper, he writes this. That's why the hymn writer sings, His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. It may be that in my covenant relationship with God that I will take an oath of allegiance and make covenant vows and shed my blood. But none of that, none of my deeds is my hope and stay. 
My hope is that behind and underneath, underneath all that is a massive div- divine initiative that chose me and predestined me and bought me and called me and raised me from the dead and justified me and put his spirit within me and wrote his law on my heart and is working in me that which is pleasing in his sight and will glorify me just as surely as his son's blood is of infinite value. That's what support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then, he and his oath and his covenant commitment and his blood and his sovereign irresistible covenant initiative is all my hope and stake. That's what we come to the table to remember.